Hello and welcome to Worst Church Ever, the progressive Christian podcast that is having trouble sleeking. Sleeking? Sleeking. No. Having trouble sleeping. I don't know. Maybe we're having trouble sleeking, if that means being sleek, because we're supposed to be the worst at this. So if we're doing a good job, I'm not even sure what that means. It's currently 12.51 a.m. East Coast time. And I'm calling this episode Holy Ghost to Coast AM. <laughs> no, that's stupid. Holy Ghost to Coast AM. <laughs> anyway, this is the progressive <laughs> Christian podcast that's awake in the middle of the night and is skipping the bumper music and reaching instead for the warm milk and melatonin. But here's what I'm thinking about, and here's why I'm recording. Well, the one, the main reason I'm recording this right now is because it's that point of the night where I feel too tired to get up and write a script or write down what I'm thinking about because I don't want to expose my eyes and my brain to the blue light of the computer and be up all night long, which might happen anyway. Um, but I was reading about, and I don't know if you can hear my dogs snoring, um, but they're here in the background. I was reading, I've been reading about quantum mechanics, quantum physics, and I've been reading about that stuff for a long time. And I'm not a physicist by any means. I'm not a math person. Um, I think I decided when I was 10 or 11 that long division was hard and therefore I was no good at math. And I never really got course corrected um, on that. And uh, so I think I internalized the idea that I was bad at math or that math was hard or whatever. I was good at geometry, though. Trigonometry was another story, but part of that had to probably do with having a crush on the girl who sat next to me and not really seeing eye-to-eye -eye with the teacher on most things. Um, but anyway, I've always been fascinated by what we're learning about quantum physics, the quantum world, and for whatever reason, some of this stuff has been creeping more and more into my Google News Feed. And so I've been reading more and more about it. And some things that are starting to pop into that feed have to do with quantum physics, quantum reality, and spirituality. And I'm reading an article right now about Schrodinger and uh, the way he looked at the Upanishads, the Indian scripture, and how the Upanishads helped him, I don't know, basically reconcile the implausibility of quantum physics uh, with a scientific worldview. So I've been reading about that and, and other things. And so I was laying here trying to fall asleep and I stumbled upon something else in my feed having to do with theology. And I clicked on it and it was about, um, well, what, what philosophers of religion are really what theologians call the Christ event. And I had first heard that phrase from my friend Scott when he was at the Lutheran uh, seminary in Philadelphia and it's not something that I had grown up hearing about, but it's basically the description of the birth or the incarnation, if you like, of Christ, Christ's ministry, his death, resurrection, and his ascension, or at least certain parts of that overarching story in a historical rather than theological context. So, for example, if I believe objectively that outside of theology and outside of doctrine, that God came in the flesh as Christ, I might refer to that in my scholarly work as the Christ event. Inside church, I might call it the incarnation. That's its theological name, right? The incarnation of God, the coming of God in flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. The incarnation is God enfleshed as one of us. And for me, as a pastor who emerges out of... Uh, some fundamentalist or evangelical tendencies and backgrounds and upbringings, 
the idea of the incarnation as sort of being the focal point of history is appealing because it lets me recast all of the attention that we focused on the theology of blood, the blood of Christ that atones for our sins. Let me refocus that away from a penal substitutionary atonement model, which I, like many evangelicals growing up, was taught was the only way to understand the passion of Christ. And it lets me think about what we mean when we talk about the precious blood of Jesus in terms of incarnation, of God being flesh and blood like we are being bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. It gives a whole new meaning for me to the practice of communion or Eucharist or Lord's Supper or whatever you'd like to call it. So I was reading this article about the Christ event, and this person says basically, you know, the Christ event is meant to redeem the cosmos through the flesh. And that's very theological terminology. But I'm reading that in parallel with what I'm reading about wave functions and probability clouds and what quantum physics is telling us. And and this whole question of when do objects start to become objects? When do macroscopic things take on or exhibit the properties of macroscopic things as we understand them? When do they stop functioning as waves or as, according to a, a wave and particle duality, when do they sort of download from the probability cloud? And for lack of a better term, maybe this is the best term, when do they incarnate? And as you might know, lots of quantum theory, certainly not all Uh, approaches and interpretations of quantum theory, but many approaches to quantum theory, notably the Copenhagen approach, says that these things become their macroscopic selves. They somehow become accessible to us along the lines of classical physics when we observe them. Which is crazy to think about. And certainly there's been... (laughs) things in the news for many, many years about new breakthroughs in quantum physics. And isn't this strange? And isn't this weird? Isn't this spooky? How can this be? But it's a real problem how we reconcile macrophysics, relativity, and quantum physics and our perceptions and our understanding of reality. So as I'm reading these two pieces sort of side by side, along with the Schrodinger piece about the Upanishads sort of in my head in the background, I'm starting to think, well, if classical Christian theology wants to say that the Christ event, the incarnation especially of Christ, uh, redeems the cosmos through the flesh, well, what does that mean? And see, for me, as a Christian, as I guess as a, as a progressive Christian, although you don't have to be a progressive to think in these terms, the real fundamental point of Christianity is Emmanuel, is God with us, is God in flesh and blood, and also God in our circumstance. And also I would say God in our reality, God in space-time. I don't mean that just in a poetic way, but I mean the entry of the eternal and the ineffable into the finite. And I always go back to the Nativity Ode by John Milton from 1626, I believe it was, or 1629, where he poetically collapses time and space around the Christ event, around the incarnation of Christ, and he sort of shows a distortion of time. I I, I talked in a couple episodes ago about the incarnation of God being like a gravity well that, that necessarily distorts our perceptions of the event itself. And so, is it a problem for me that there are discrepancies in scripture or discrepancies within Christian witness? And really, no, partly because if God incarnates or if God comes near to Israel or if God does anything 
that communities of faith believe God does, uh, the gravity well that that produces, I don't mean literally a gravity well, but something like it, some sort of distortion of space and time that's necessitated by the presence of the eternal in the temporal. We can't help but have four different accounts of the resurrection that don't all agree in every detail. Now, that's especially important if you need to uh, hold to the belief that the scriptures as we have them are in some way helpful or inspired or necessary for Christian life. And that's, I think, a very debatable topic, as you might know from the podcast. You know that I've said, along with Karl Barth, <laughs> look at me, all along with Karl Barth, but Karl Barth says, well, Jesus is the Word of God, right? Not the Bible. And so, that brings me back to incarnation. That brings me back to the theory, to the, to the theology of incarnation. And I suppose for the purposes of what I'm reading about and scrolling through tonight and the things that I'm thinking about as I try to finish my warm milk and take my melatonin, is that what if, what if the redemption of the cosmos through the flesh is the decision that God makes to initiate the Christ event? In other words, what if just as a tree is not really a tree until we observe it as such, right? A quantum reality that exists in a, in a cloud of probabilities. What if the cloud of probabilities that exist before God are whatever they may be, and God chooses observation? God chooses to observe humankind up close and personal. God chooses incarnation, and thereby... God binds God's self to humanity, to our plight, to our struggles, to our fate, to everything. So what if God is actualizing God's self in macro terms, making decisions in the quantum realm in some way, shape, or form? Or what if physics is, is pointing to that reality? What if our scriptures are pointing to that reality? What if... It's not just the incarnation that's a reflection or a function of reality as it may or may not objectively or subjectively exist, right? And what if it's not just God who is able to collapse the wave function and produce something like objective reality, at least in terms of God's commitment to humankind in the incarnation? So if the blur between how quantum physics and quantum mechanics govern the functioning of microscopic things. The blur between that and how classical physics or relativity seem to govern other things. If, if that blur, where is that blur? And if, if it's the case that it's observation that makes the difference between the two, maybe God's decision to observe us from a place of complete and total poverty and powerlessness as the infant Christ is the collapsing of that wave function. But, like I said, what if it's not only God that can do that? What if we, in time immemorial, also had that ability? And here I'm leaning a little bit on the idea of the Upanishads as Schrodinger understood them, having to do with the idea that there's only one universal consciousness of which we are all a part. So what if somehow, in God's consciousness, I'm using Christian language here, um, not necessarily the language that's native to the Indian scriptures. But what if God, 
in God's it has in his consciousness in in God's consciousness I should say all the different possibilities all the probabilities a probability cloud what if God's consciousness is in some way shape or form a cloud of probabilities now this is what Bart talked about when he was trying to figure out how we have evil, God, Bart talked about the idea of das Nichtige, the nothing, that's from the German, the nothing, being all these possibilities that exist somewhere uh, outside of the mind of God, or that exist within the mind of God, but that God chooses not to actualize. And so that whenever we choose things that aren't God, we are choosing Das Nichtige, and Das Nichtige, the nothing, the thing that literally does not exist because God has not willed it to exist. God has not, if you like, collapsed that wave function and brought that into reality. We, however, do. We, however, are able still to pull that probability of evil out from Das Nichtige, out from the probability cloud, and in some way, shape, or form, actualize it in our observable reality and what we call evil or what in fact is evil is the aggregation of humankind making that choice all the time since the since humanity began take it even further back take it as an allegory look at genesis itself as a discussion perhaps pointing to the idea of existence in god being something like existence in God's consciousness, and then humankind, for whatever reason, spurred by whatever thing, choosing to actualize what? Choosing to collapse the wave function. Choosing to disobey. Now, if you've listened to any of my podcasts, you know that I don't believe in original sin, I don't believe in the story of Adam and Eve, the way fundamentalist or evangelical Christianity teaches it. But what if that lesson is still instructive for us? What if it's actually intuitive? What if there is some wisdom there? And of course there is, right? It might not line up at all with the quantum realm, but for the purposes of this thought experiment, if the incarnation is the thing that redeems the cosmos through the flesh, well, what caused the need for the cosmos to be redeemed? What if the Bible's reflection that we call the story of Adam and Eve, the taking of the knowledge of the apple or the fruit, rather, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what if that's representing a time when humankind or some human consciousness or pre-human consciousness chose to collapse the wave function of probabilities and chose not only to grasp at something that was off limits or in my way of thinking really in classical terms the story of adam and eve is really about us hoarding for ourselves more than we need and people suffering as a result of that right but what if we've actually in some way actualized the existence of evil itself what if humankind collapse the wave function that brought the sneaktiga into the world what if humankind created good and evil right if we exist in the mind and the consciousness of god if there's only one consciousness why do we have why do things appear to be uh, such that there are multiple billions of consciousnesses if all consciousness conscious it's one o'clock in the morning if all consciousnesses are one why do we have this fractured appearance of the one true consciousness now for schrodinger the idea was well the only way, if, if my 
decision or my observation of X, Y, or Z causes X, Y, or Z to behave like matter and not like, uh, not like a wave. If it causes it to behave like something that has some sort of objective real existence, as opposed to something that's part of a cloud of probability, then how can it be that I'm not the only person observing that reality? I observe a tree, but so do you. It's, you see it, I see it. Perhaps we are different heights. We have different uh, vision. We have different uh, faculties of vision, so we see it somewhat differently. You see it blurry. I see it more clearly. I see it from a taller or shorter vantage than you do. But it's the same tree. It's the same tree. It's the same tree. You can, build a, you can use it to build a house or a cross or whatever you choose to do with it. How is it, Schrodinger would say, that we all observe the same things, relatively speaking, in what we think of as objective reality? And he would go back to the Upanishads and say, the only answer can be that we're all part of the same consciousness and that we're all creating reality together. So if that's true, that's a big if, obviously, theologically speaking, philosophically speaking, and scientifically speaking, for sure. But if it's true that we're all part of the same consciousness, and yet we experience ourselves to be part of differentiated consciousnesses, how did that happen? Well, perhaps maybe the book of Genesis and the story of Adam and Eve takes on new relevance. If, if, it's, such, if it's the case that humankind chose not just to disobey, that's not really the point of the story. Humankind chose to enact or actualize or observe ah, to observe the difference between good and evil, right? Eating the fruit is a symbol on this view for choosing to observe the difference between good and evil. Because it's not called the tree of good or the tree of evil. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So eating its fruit is observing the difference between the knowledge of good, observing the knowledge of good and evil, observing the difference between good and evil. And if quantum theory and Schrodinger and perhaps the Upanishads are correct in saying that observation is what creates reality as we understand it, then that means that choosing to observe the difference between good and evil created the difference between good and evil, which is the same thing as saying choosing to observe the knowledge of good and evil created good and evil. Because in the mind of God, evil is relegated to das nichtige. It doesn't get actualized. God does not download it from the probability cloud. But we do. So, on that view, the quantum gospel is the gospel that says it takes an act of God in reverse. It takes an opposite action of God. If we willed evil into existence, not because we did one naughty little thing that God said not to do, but because we actually created and incarnated Das Nichtige by choosing it, when we were happily living in one unified consciousness with God which somehow is differentiated, right? Otherwise, we couldn't have made this choice. But the Garden of Eden is a metaphor for this sort of idyllic state of a consciousness that recognizes that it's part of a larger, unified, singular, uh, unitary consciousness. If we created good and evil, then it must take the willful act, the willful collapsing, of the wave functions to undo that choice. So it's 110, and now I'm going to try to go to sleep.
I recorded this uh, on my cell phone through the Anchor.fm software, and I've tried to do it in hushed tones because my family's asleep and my dogs, as you know, are snoring. So it's not quite our usual format. I am a little tired, but I figured if I recorded this on my phone, I would minimize the blue light infiltrating my brain and keeping me awake. This has been Holy Ghost Coast to Coast, if you like. Holy Ghost to Coast AM. Yes, that's a nod to all those crazy talk shows that take place Eastern Time, 1 to 5 AM. This has been a middle-of-the-night bullshit session with Worst Church Ever. But it's something I'm going to keep thinking about and keep reading about and keep developing um, as I think about what does it mean to be real? What does it mean to observe reality? Why does any of this matter? I think my hunch is this. My hunch is that the insights of quantum physics, quantum mechanics, those are going to inform theology in ways that we can't even begin to understand. And, and, and they should. And they should. The scientific revolution influenced theology in ways that fundamentalists and evangelicals are still denying. And perhaps what makes a Christian a progressive Christian is admitting <laughs> that many of our philosophical and epistemological uh, traditions are borrowed. They don't come from the mind and heart of God. They come from what human beings are trying to do, which is trying to understand reality as it presents, as it presents itself to us. And into that mix comes the incarnated God, and then all heaven breaks loose. That's the hope. Be well and get some rest. Bye for now.